Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit Goyal. We are back with a Narratives in Cardiology series designed to promote diversity and inclusion in cardiology because our differences make us stronger. Today, we get to discuss becoming and thriving as a program director with two star PDs, Dr. Julie Damp and Dr. Katie Burlacher. As Air Force Cardio Nerds dives in for a landing in Nashville, Tennessee, we are so excited to bring on our co-pilots and Cardio Nerds family members. We have our Director of Cardio Nerds Internship, Dr. Gerlene Kaur, and Cardio Nerds Ambassador from Vanderbilt University, Dr. Victoria Thomas. But before we touch down, Dan, what's the weather down there? I am sure it's far better than Cleveland, Ohio, where we're expecting a winter storm today on February 2nd, 2022. Oh, Ahmed, thank you so much for that. This is my time to shine as the weatherman. But before we do get to the weather, we can already hear the amazing music coming from the country greats, Jimmy Rogers, Fred Rose, and of course, Hank Williams. But I'm definitely an imposter here because who am I feeling? I'm no country music buff, but these are the people that I Googled as part of the Country Music Hall of Fame. You may want to slip that in there as you teach us a little bit more about Nashville. But anyhow, getting back to my day job, the weather. It's a beautiful star-studded evening and it's 52 degrees and it's not raining. Now, back to the real program. I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Gerlene Kaur, who is a first-year internal medicine resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She received her MD with distinction in research from Albany Medical College as part of the Physician Scientist Program and the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. During medical school, her research focused on cardiovascular prevention and cardiobstetrics. She was also a member of the ACC Student Leadership Group and Perspectives Editorial Committee. She is passionate that we know about all things cardiology, clinical reasoning, and medical education. And when it comes to Cardinerts, Gerlene has been exemplary in all domains. She is the director of the Cardinerts Internship and a Cardinerts Academy Fellow for the 2022 class. Gerlene is also leading the tutorial segment of the narrative series, and you should check them out on the webpage that will be in the show notes for this episode. And she is studying this impact of her tweets on social media. So welcome, 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 Gerlene. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be back and record on such an interesting topic. And this topic is particularly special to me as someone who's interested in their career in academic medicine. So thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited to also get to meet Dr. Victoria Thomas. I've edited some of her stuff and her content on previous episodes. So it's great to be here live with her. Victoria is one of our amazing Cardi Nerds ambassadors representing Vanderbilt University. She recently accepted a position to extend her training into interventional cardiology. She plans to be an academic interventional cardiologist with a focus on health disparities within coronary and peripheral artery disease. She's excited about medical education, health equity, learning new recipes, and research methodology as she begins to pursue a Master of Science in Clinical Investigation. Thank you so much, Carlene. I am equally excited about meeting you finally, and I'm also excited to be back. So hello to the nerd family. I love the show and everything it stands for. So anytime Dan and Amit invite me back, I am so eager to help and learn. I am particularly excited today because I get to meet in person one of my favorite medical educators, and I get to introduce one of my favorite medical educators and mentors. Dr. Julie Damp, who happens to be a general cardiologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where she serves as an associate professor and the director, or sometimes second mother slash friend and 
last cheerleader or all of the above packaged in one for the fellows, including myself and the cardiovascular fellowship training program. She is involved in the American College of Cardiology, currently serving on the diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, and as the chair for the curriculum design committee. She is a clinician, an educator, and researcher with a focus on cardiac disease and pregnancy and medical education. However, despite all of this, her most important role is being the mom to her three amazing kids. I love her stories about her children in the echo room. But as some would say, she is not new to this. She's true to this in her passion for cardiology and especially medical education. And with visiting us in the Cardio Nerds family, she has been in episodes 48 and 113. So Dr. Damp, welcome back. We are super excited to have you. Thank you so much, Victoria. Um, and thanks all of you. It's such an honor anytime I get to talk with this amazing Cardio Nerds team and the Cardio Nerds family and get to support the mission of this group. It's just, I mean, just such an amazing honor. And anytime I get to join forces with also my first favorite medical educator, Dr. Katie Burlacher, then it makes it even better. So I will say a little dangerous, maybe that y'all had us on here open mic live, but you know, we're going to go with it. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Dr. Dan, and I have the honor of introducing Dr. Katie Burlacher. Dr. Katie Burlacher is an assistant professor in medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where she's also the program director of the Cardiovascular Fellowship and associate chief of education for the UPMC Heart and Vascular Institute. Her interests include women's heart disease, including pregnancy and heart disease risks, as well as medical education. Her involvement in education has been substantial as part of the Lifelong Learning and Oversight Committee of the ACC, as well as a member of the Annual Scientific Sessions Planning Committee. She will be the next vice chair for the annual ACC Scientific Meeting. Very exciting to hear that. She's also been so instrumental to Cardi Nerds in all aspects of our growth throughout, including the Narratives in Cardiology series, and she's just been so generous with her guidance, mentorship, and time throughout this. While she did debate Ahmed and Dan during the trendy versus traditional teaching, in CV Fellowship debate, she is a true Cardi Nerd at heart and received the Master Cardi Nerds Award for her support of the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. Outside of all this amazing work, I hear that she's also an avid cyclist, boxer, and hiker. Welcome, Dr. Burlacher. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me, Cardio Nerds. I think what Victoria said is absolutely correct. Whenever you ask me to do something, I can't say no. It is always an automatic yes, which I'm sure at some point today, Julie and I will talk about the need to say no at some point in your career. But to you guys, it's always a yes. And I will second that it is slightly dangerous to put Julie and I on at the same time. She is one of my favorite humans in general, not only just a, a fantastic educator and cardiologist, but a very, very dear friend. And so I am thrilled to be here tonight. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for being here. The energy is amazing, and I think it just speaks to the connections we make as we uh, tread this path. So it's just great to see everyone here together. Dr. Damp and Dr. Berlacher, we are just so delighted to have you both back on this podcast. You two have served as such great encouragement for us individually and also just for cardiners more broadly. We thought you all would be amazing to speak about for graduate medical education and the balancing act, the program director's space. As program directors, you are the sounding board and motivation for so many cardiology fellows, and you do so while managing your own professional responsibilities and personal well-beings. And I feel like as I'm asking you this, you guys ever had the feeling when you're going along your day and a patient turns to you and asks, hey, doctor, how are you feeling today? 
You know what? I feel like you guys are probably asking everyone, hey, how's your day going? How are you doing? What do you need to make your day better, your month better, your rotation better? I, I wonder how many times you guys get asked that question yourself as, as a PDs, but can you share with our audience what inspired you to pursue graduate medical education and a little bit about that journey? Dr. Berlacher, maybe we can start with you. Sure. Happy to share it. I am actually, fortunately, I come from a fair amount of privilege in that my father is a cardiologist and my mother was an elementary school teacher. And so this is, I think this is the only way I could combine them or one of the many ways I'm sure actually to combine both of them in education. But you know, that was not the plan way back when. I think when I was growing up, I really just wanted to be what I called a normal doctor, which was the doctors that I saw growing up, right? When I would go to the pediatrics office, not a pediatrician necessarily, but just normal. I actually didn't even know what the difference was between academic and private. I had no idea that there was a thing called medical education in between. And it really wasn't until medical school. I actually went to Ohio State for medical school, or the Ohio State, as, as Dr. Quinn Capers likes to remind me, the Ohio State Medical School before, I'm going to date myself, but this was before PBL or problem-based learning was cool and integrated into everything in medical school. And they had a small subset, 35 of us, that could choose to do the first two years of medical school in the problem-based learning pathway, meaning that after anatomy was done, I didn't go to classes. I am not a didactic learner. And actually, we can get to that at some point, maybe in a, another series where we talk about adult learning theory. But I knew that I didn't well, sit well if I just sat in a classroom and took notes. So this sounded awesome to me. And in small groups throughout each semester, we would work through cases and then delineate our own learning objectives and say, test me on XYZ, and they would test us. And that was really the first time that I thought about how adults learn and how I learn and how we could train physicians and other CBT members better. And then kind of as I progressed into residency and learned what a chief resident was, I mean, you don't know these things, right? When you're growing up, like you don't know any of those things. So I was like, well, maybe I'll do chief residency. I'm not really sure. But then I was like, oh, I really like this. And my mentors at the time were like, if you like the meetings that you go to as a chief resident, which most chief residents dread, if you like those, which I did, you should really consider some of these things. Because being an educator with a big E, is actually not always about teaching directly. It's a lot of behind the scenes work. It's a lot of day-to-day -day grind, which is mentoring and hearing complaints and those sorts of things. You really, I, I like Julie says, and like Victoria was referencing, I feel like I have 30 some children at all times because somebody always needs them, right? And that was what I loved, honestly. It was the constant interaction and whatnot. And so as I went through fellowship, I really talked to a lot of my mentors. The career of a medical educator evolved. And I will say I'm not done evolving yet. This is something that we continue to just grow into. And Julie and I are constantly talking to each other about our next steps as an educator in ways that are fun and different and innovative. And the Cardio Nerds has absolutely been a part of that evolution in the past couple of years. So thank you. Yeah, I echo everything that Dr. Berlager just said. Slightly different from the doctor-teacher combo. I had two teacher combo parents. And when I was young, it was the only thing I would say I was never going to do. People would say, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I'd say, I'm not going to be a teacher. Part of the reason I think that that was is I really saw the calling they had, the effort and the love and everything that they poured into what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, when I was a kid, that wasn't what was necessarily appealing to me about whatever glamorous career I was going to have as an astronaut or something in the future. I think as I got into medical education and I was really pushed and inspired by some of the amazing outstanding teachers that I had that really had a huge influence on my own career development, I realized that that spark probably was planted a long time ago and started to come out in me, but just in obviously a little bit of a different path. 
And during my chief fellow year was when I really dove into some of the things that Katie was just talking about teaching and education as a field. And as a cardiologist, you learn to love evidence-based practice and understanding that there's an entire science and field out there that I'd never been exposed to before as part of my medical training and sort of diving into that. It just really sparked something in me that really took hold. And I really wanted to spend some time learning more about those things, pursuing it and figuring out how we do better. Thank you, Dr. Dib and Dr. Berlecker for sharing your journey. And I really liked how you mentioned that having a parent being an educator really informs your path. Um, my mom's also a, a teacher, so it's definitely affected me tremendously, I think, in my interest in education. I know both of you have written about medical education in different capacities from diversity to learners, learning preferences, as well as burnout. And Dr. Dib, you recently co-authored a feature Jack paper with another program entitled Burnout and Wellbeing Among Cardiology Fellowship Program Directors. Would you be able to define burnout for us and tell us what motivated you all to come together and write this paper? Yeah, I would be happy to. I'll tell you my favorite definition of burnout is the one that you get that's not related to work or related to anything to do with medicine. If you just Google it, it'll say something along the lines of reducing a fuel to nothing through use. And I actually think that really summarizes what burnout is, even in the context of how we think about it related to work and to stress. And WHO defines it as a syndrome that comes from the chronic workplace stress that's not managed successfully and leads to exhaustion, feeling really disconnected and unsatisfied and makes you less productive as a professional. We know that this is a real problem in all of medicine, and there's been data that's been put out that 30 to 45 percent of cardiologists suffer from burnout. And so as we were thinking about ways that we could help the cardiology medical education community, we thought, well, let's look at this and program directors and see, is it the same for them? Is it better? Is it worse? So they have different drivers. And are there things that we could potentially identify that could be helpful for the program director community? Well, Dr. Berlecker, as Erling mentioned, you too have written about burnout. I know your paper was referencing internal medicine residents entitled Grit Does Not Predict Burnout Among First-Year Internal Medicine Residents. However, there are many articles talking about burnout at every stage of medical training, even into private factors or academic medicine in general, from medical students to program directors. And all of us nerds look up to you, Dr. Berlacher, as I was mentioning earlier, you're basically a hero of mine from a distance. So what do you think are the major factors leading to burnout in all of these phases for physicians? I think that's a wonderful question, Victoria. I wish I had a concise, succinct answer. So actually, one of my mentees who was doing his master's degree in medical education, he was a resident in our internal medicine residency program, and I failed at convincing him to do cardiology. He had wanted to initially, but I failed. He loved medical education so much that he was like, I can only see that blinders on for just med ed. He came to me and we were thinking about burnout and he was also fascinated with the concept of grit and we were really interested in the relationship between them and we were naively thinking that maybe they were just inversely related. People who have high grit are less likely to be burnout in the future. And that actually didn't pan out. The article that we published and the data that we found didn't support that hypothesis, which is great. I always love when you prove a hypothesis wrong. And we kind of went back to the drawing board to say, what does affect burnout? Exactly what you're asking. I think that grit in some way is related to it, but it's not a simple relationship. And I think the more that you think about it is exactly what Julie was talking about, which is 
emotional exhaustion and physical exhaustion, those two things can lead to it, which if you think about first year intern life, first year fellow life, first year faculty life, those are really, really risky periods of a trainee's and a physician's life. And then you think about the second thing, which is depersonalization. So you feel like a cog in the wheel at most of those moments because you're learning the system. You don't feel special. You don't feel unique. You really haven't progressed your career enough. And then the last thing really is a decrease of accomplishment. Those are the first years where you were riding high, your fourth year of med school or your third year of residency and your last year of fellowship. And then you like plummet again and you're like, I know nothing, you know, and like severe imposter syndrome comes back in addition to all these things. So I think it's the layers of those things that eventually lead to burnout. It looks different. And every aspect of our career, when we think about mid-career and late careers, and as Julie was talking about, her study was looking at program directors. And so program directors have different levels of that. And certainly first-year program directors, and maybe you feel like you get a hold of it. And then senior, very long-term program directors are getting tired again. But I think those standard themes of depersonalization, feeling like you're not efficacious or accomplishing anything, and then just exhaustion, both emotional and physical, are really the primary threads that lead to it, regardless of where you are. Dr. Burlacher, I couldn't relate to that more. It's unbelievable and very timely. The insights into emotional and physical exhaustion, cognitive load, and that imposter syndrome. We realize that everybody at every stage, as we just said, can be vulnerable to some form of burnout. We have to understand that there are factors that lead to burnout. And God, my wife and I'm probably in that order, maybe even in another order, know that I get snippier as I near the burnout zone. That has become my internal memo to take a real mental and physical break. When I started Interventional Year, I just love it in the cath lab. It's a great team. The patients are great. We get to work with such a great team and equipment and things are very exciting and hopefully patients have good outcomes. I remember thinking, bring another patient, bring another patient. Let's do another case. Let's do another case. But then I would get this sense of getting snippy. I'm always trying to smile and stuff, but it's in my head. You know, I say like, wow, I'm getting really snippy. I never am like that. And that's when I realized you can be having fun and you could be learning a lot, but you could also be experiencing burnout. And that goes back to that physical exhaustion. It does get to you and you have to learn how to recognize that in yourself and take a break. And sometimes you have to find a support system that can let you know, be like, whoa, Dan, you don't usually think like that. You don't usually talk like that. And then you know, okay, it's time to take a break. As program directors, you are the safeguard against burnout for so many of your program trainees and colleagues. And you have so much influence over your environment. As an aside, this episode is so timely because my dear program director, Dr. Stephen Schulman, a wonderful gentleman, inspired me to go into the field of cardiology, amazing educator, and so upbeat on rounds, just announced his retirement, which was a total surprise to us. I don't know if you know my colleague, who's our chief fellow this year, Anna Minhas, and I were just talking about it in our break room, and we were literally tearing up. We're so excited for him for his next leg of his journey of life. He wants to spend a lot of time with his grandchildren, but we are just, we never realized like, I mean, we knew how much we love him and we knew how much support he's given to us, but we never realized like how this would hit us. It feels like a horse kicked our hearts. So, you know, Dr. Damp and Dr. Burlucker, as program directors, what do you think are some tools or tactics to detect, prevent, or address burnout and potentially make a really important impact in the lives of your trainees? Yeah, I mean, you gave me the easiest question, right? With the simplest answer. <laughs> Just like Katie was saying that burnout, there's not a simple single thing you can identify that's causing it at every stage or in every individual. And I think the solutions similarly are pretty complex. I'm just going to go ahead and say that there are a lot of drivers that we all recognize of burnout that are system issues, that are things that are very difficult and can feel really overwhelming to address either in your local learning environment or individually. 
I think that being said, though, there are some things from a program standpoint that we can work to do, which have a lot to do with the culture and the community that we create within our programs. We know that having a feeling of belonging within a group reduces stress and burnout. And I think trying to make sure that your fellows and your faculty, too, feel that they belong to a community within your program can be really impactful. I think we do try a lot in our program to really destigmatize and openly talk about these challenges. Victoria just said she loves to hear the stories of my kids, which is good because almost everything ends up in one for me because <laughs> that's so much a part of what I do on a day-to-day basis. But I was just talking to my daughter about this the other day because she said, well, I didn't want to say that I wasn't motivated to do that because you're always motivated to do everything. And I was like, is that what you think? No, that's just because I'm trying to put on a good face in front of you. But that's not helpful, right? When we think other people aren't feeling the same stressors or lack of motivation or emotional exhaustion that we're feeling. And so really talking openly about those things and destigmatizing them, I think is so, so important. I think also when we're able to empower fellows and faculty to have some control over their environment, I think that can have a potentially huge impact on feeling a little more purposeful in your job. And then making sure that we try to remind ourselves and each other of the rewards. And what we do is important. It's amazing. And it's sometimes, you know, get into these these cycles of burnout, you really lose sight of that. So reminding people how appreciated they are, how important the work they're doing is, the achievements that they've made, like the one Dr. Thomas just amazingly had this week with her grants. These things are really important and can really help, I think, try to minimize some of that exhaustion and sort of depersonalization that we feel. Katie, if you want to take just sort of other things that you guys do or even personal things, I'll turn that over to you. Thanks, Julie. Those are all wonderful things. And I jotted down a couple notes when I was thinking before as to what it is that you do, because I think you and I get into the habit nowadays. We've been doing this for a long time that some of it, the creation of a culture doesn't happen overnight, right? And that takes years upon years of us interviewing the right people and ranking and then having a tone and a transparency. I think one of the most important things is that, especially for fellows, that they know that somebody will listen to them. I think that's true for faculty, too. I have a standing rule with my fellows, like my door is always open. Half the time I'm not in there. So then my phone is always on and near me. They can find me at all times, which is very annoying to my husband, because when we're sitting at night on the couch watching a show at 1030, he's like, why are you texting right now? I'm like, well, but one of my fellows really needs me. Maybe I have too little of a boundary at times, but I think that's really helpful to know that there's somebody that's always there. The other thing that I was going to say that Julie said is transparency to know not only what's going on, but the why behind it. So we like to include our fellows in conversations and actually invite them to some of the faculty meetings so that they know that when a service changes or coverage changes or call like something is different, especially from a process or an administration standpoint. They know the why behind it, because that control aspect that Julie was talking about is really important when you don't feel like you have control, which as a fellow, you don't. Let's be honest, you don't have complete control, but at least you could feel like you're not excluded from important conversations. And so I try to break down that door, or at least open it as much as possible for them. I think what Julie was referencing with regards to other things in your personal life that you do for burnout, which is also what everybody references nowadays, is that I have a crazy addiction to exercise. It has been my anti-anxiety and antidepressant medicine for a very, very, very long time. That's not to say that having a formal therapist and taking action actual pills for those things is also really important. But for me, exercise has done it. 
Dan, what you were talking about with that cranky, whether it's in your head or sometimes coming out of your mouth. If I don't exercise for two days, it will come like fire breathing, dragging. I am ready to like do it. And I know Julie does it too, because sometimes we'll be on meetings together and I'll text her and I'll be like, dude, your face, it's a scowl. You know, that sort of thing. And we need our friends to help us a little bit because practicing many moments of gratitude is actually what's helpful. When you have routines like that, whether it's exercise, whether it's being grateful and that sort of thing, it really does help your individual lack of burnout as you go through what your work and your group and then bigger picture system and administrative burdening. I think this is very funny. Dr. Burlacher's brother was my chief resident, Mark. He's amazing. It must run in the Burlacher family as exercise their stress therapy because when I was his intern, he would be like, I mean, have you been working out? And I was like, no, I have and he was like, maybe you should go on a run. So maybe it's a very burlock. <laughs> it's a genetic thing for us burlockers. We fix a lot of things with exercise. We work through it with running. Apologies, I mean, Victoria, but he is a good human. He's like a wonderful human. So I'm glad you got to interact with him. It's all in the genes, exercise and being a wonderful human. But I think that's very true about burnout. When Mark encouraged me to get back into running as an intern, that really helped me make it through that. Also, to Dr. Dan's point about that sense of belonging or connection, as she's been my program director in fellowship, because as Dr. Berlacher was talking about, you feel that pit of a fall. And I definitely felt coming in very strong as a third year to the reality of what your first year fellowship is. That's a game changer. Cardio Nerds has actually been a great way for me to feel connected as a fellow because it's a way for me not to just be in this group as someone who loves cardiology, but what it means to be a daughter a significant other, a friend to others. And those all really help when you need someone to relate to help prevent the burnout. So I think Dr. Berlacher and Dr. Gambiel's points are very true. So thank you. You know, I couldn't agree more. The value of connection in terms of how we feel and how we value ourselves. This was kind of a special time. The world is smaller now. You know, we just look at this Zoom meeting and this podcast right here, right now. We are all in different places and we're able to spend this time together. Dr. Damp, you were thinking about definitions of burnout earlier in this discussion. I was remembering a couple of nights ago when I was in bed, my wife was reading this children's book to my son, Dhruv, and it's called How Full Is Your Bucket? I don't know if you guys have heard of that one, but it's about this kid, Felix, who's like going through his day interacting with people. And he learns that through your interactions, you can add to people's bucket or you could take it away. So he just learns about how interactions and again, this connection that Victoria is talking about really is such a powerful way to fill up our buckets and vice versa. But there's a lot you can learn in children's books I've learned over the past couple of years, to be honest. Profound stuff. But speaking of buckets, Dr. Verlacher, Dr. Damp, you guys have been PDs for quite some time now, and we'd love to hear about what is it that keeps you going? What is it that keeps your buckets full in this role? What are some of the most meaningful parts of your job? And maybe what are some of the hardest? Some of the hardest and the most meaningful are the same thing. Sometimes for me, it's always a double-edged sword. The two things that I say, Ahmed, it's exactly what you said. You do it for the people, right? So I went into medicine because I wanted to take care of patients. And at the end of the day, that's still why I do it. I love patients. One of my best friends in training, he is a researcher. He now does gun research and PTSD work in the VA system. But he was talking, I was like, why would you want to be a researcher? You're so good at clinical and like you don't get the interaction. And he was like, you know, I want to be able to affect as many patients as I possibly can through research because that will give people tools. The way that I think about medical education is the same way. I can affect so many patients by really training fellows and residents 
and medical students to be an awesome cardiologist or physician or whatever. Because if I think about every single one of the fellows that has come through my program and then all of the patients that they will see, it's hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions by the time I'm old. I'm already going gray, but you know, like it's a thing. At the end of graduation every year, I'd say I don't have many first author Jack papers and I probably never will because what I consider my output are all of you every single year. You give me so much joy. I'm so proud of the accomplishments that you have and the things that you achieve moving forward. For me, that's what it is. It's watching humans grow up to be these awesome cardiologists and then making patients happy and healthier and better. That's why I do it. As usual, I really couldn't articulate better than what Katie just said. That's beautiful what she just said. And I think exactly is right on the the nail. And you know, I think in addition to that, one of the things that I really find meaningful is working within the system that we're in and trying to gradually make improvements sort of along the same lines of just having opportunities to maximize impact and seeing ripple effects of that. That to me is also very rewarding and very, very meaningful. The hardest part of this job is tied exactly to what Katie just said, but it's the worry. You do worry a lot as you're helping and guiding and watching. And so that aspect, I think, is one of the more challenging pieces, but it's just part of the wonderful things that Katie just described. Well, from a personal note, as someone who's cried in Dr. Dan's office, where there's tears of joy or tears of sadness, she's always been there to support me, which I'm super appreciative of. Dr. Dan, after reading your article that you co-authored, it did make me reflect that trainees are lucky to have several mentors to count on. And I wonder how this transition happened for you all in your early and mid-career faculty. Specifically, what supports do you think most program directors would believe they have or could use more of? I would love for both of you all to actually comment on that. Yeah, of course. You know, I think program directors have some institutional resources, which differs from place to place. And you have your local GME, your own divisional leadership. One of the most important resources that we have is each other. I think Katie would agree with that. Just being able to tap into the program director community and learn from people who've had tons of experience. You're facing an issue you're not sure about and you know, asking, you know, for other people what their experiences are, that support and that networking. One of the things that we have tried to work on as well is providing some more streamlined resources, things that can get new program directors up to speed more quickly. You know, it was a joy I got to work with Katie, uh, you know, putting together sort of an online, you know, series of things for new program directors because there's lingo and just simple things like that that you don't necessarily know about until you get into that role and you're sort of going through some of the accreditation processes and things like that. But I honestly really think that the most important resource is peers. I don't know, Katie, what do you think about that? I have to say that because I always go to you. We text almost on a daily basis between Julie and Andy Cates and Gabby Wiseman. Now we're just silly friends at this point, which is more than just program director support. But I think it's vital to have that group that you can text immediately and say, hey, I'm stuck. But it's also important to have those more structured tools because med ed, like any other expertise, is its own language. So understanding the alphabet soup of graduate medical education, undergraduate medical education, the ABIM, the ACGME, what's the difference between GME and ACGME? What's ERAS? What's the NRMP? And then you get into, oh, that's the Clinical Competency Committee and Trustful Professional Activities, all those things. And you're like, who wants to learn about that? And B, how do I figure it out? Because usually when you want to be a program director right away, 
you're not like, oh, I can't wait for the vocabulary, right? Like that's not why any of us do it or the rules. Who's excited for policy and rules? Julie does like rules. Julie gets to make a lot of the rules. So when you're at her level, then you can kind of like them a little bit more. But none of us went into it because of some of that. We all went into it for the people. And I think the things that are most helpful are the community. Some of the policies are changing. We've been trying to change a lot of the policies in GME and ACGME for the better to protect program directors. We've still got a long way to go. And for trainees, case in point, the parental leave is improving slowly but surely in ACGME. And Julie had done a lot of work on that. It's nice to be able to see that both there's tons more to do. And the last thing that I'll say is more medical educators. <laughs> more would be great. We would love more. Dr. Burlacher and Dr. Davey mentioned that there's a lot of different aspects of being a program director and all these organizations, the vocab, policies. And I imagine that time is also a big component. I know even as clinicians, time, there's a lot of different responsibilities and time plays a big factor into navigating all those different roles that clinicians have. So I was wondering if you could share with us and our audience about your experience with time management as program directors and how it works in terms of do you get protected time for your responsibilities as a program director while also being actively involved in other aspects like being a clinician and other aspects of your professional development. And it's kind of going off of that similar to RVUs that are used for clinical time, is GME trying to move to an educational RVU system? Lots of good questions. We could probably do an entire podcast on that question, Girlene. So time is tough. I would say that the answer that most program directors would have given to your last question, what do you need more of, is time. If I could have 36 hours in my day and everybody else could stay at 24, that would be terrific. But that's never going to happen, right? When you think about juggling your time and managing your time, when you get to be a program director, one of the skills you really need to work on, and I still have a lot of work to do on this, is delegation. I'm a little bit better at delegation, but Julie and I have talked extensively about associate program directors. And we're talking a lot today about being a PD, but essential are your program directors and your program coordinators and your core faculty. If you don't have that group of people, you will fail as a program director. You cannot do it without a village. So that to me is one of the most important things to learn how to do is how to delegate. Which tasks do you choose to keep for yourself and which do you choose to give away? The ones that suck all of your time and energy and make you cranky, Dan, those are the ones that you try to give away. The ones that are really high risk that you can't get wrong, but maybe you still don't like, those are ones that you question or maybe get a little bit of help on. I've really advocated for different APDs in specific areas. So a research APD, a QI APD, so that I can delegate all of that topic to them and then I can oversee all of it. So any level of leadership, regardless of whether it's in medical education or elsewhere, I think delegation is one of the key skills that you need to do in order to manage your time well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. And I think one of the things that's challenging as a program director, and this is true in medical education and in general, is having a set aside period of time is challenging because that's not always when you're needed or that's not always when something happens. To Katie's point about, you know, texting at 1030 at night and office hours at 9 a.m. on a Monday don't help with that. That's one of the things that's challenging from a time management standpoint in this role. There are a couple of things not unique to program directors, but things that I tell fellows a lot about time management. Organization is so key to effective time management. So figuring out whatever your system is critical. And one of the reasons why that organization helped me so much is because it allows you to pretty quickly say, what amount of time do I have right this second and find a task on your to-do list that meets that time. So if you have 15 minutes, you're not trying to tackle a two-hour task. And if you have two hours, you're not picking up a 15-minute task because 
then it'll take you two hours to do a 15 minute test. So figuring out how you match your available time to what is necessary for a particular job is so critical with that organization time management. The other thing also not unique to being a program director, but I think it's just helpful sometimes to hear. It's really nice if you say, okay, well, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to work on ABC right now. But sometimes you're just not feeling it. That's just not where your mind is. You're worrying about something else or dealing with something else. I really have gotten better as time has gone by about listening to myself and not trying to just double down and say, no, I'm getting this done right now. Sometimes if I'm reading the same thing over and over again, I'm spinning my wheels, then I'm going to get up and go move to something else. Take a break, go for a run, whatever it is, do something else, just move to a different task and get a little win under my belt and then be in a more efficient state of mind to go back and tackle that other thing. And I think those things are just really important to hear said out loud. I have one more comment, Garlene. You asked such a nice question that both Julie and I forgot to answer. The one question, which I think actually has an answer, which is the educational credits. And is GME thinking about that? I don't think GME is thinking about this. Educational credits are EVUs or ECUs, depending on what institution you're at. There's a lot of institutions that are transitioning to that or adding that into the RVUs. As most of you probably know, we're moving away from an RVU system or at least more of a hybrid system so that it's a quality with RVUs. And then now adding for people who are in academic centers an ECU of some sort. I don't know that GME will ever mandate that. That's a really hard thing for them to do, given the broad variety of programs that they oversee across the nation. Amit's messaging me on the side, how much of an important conversation this is. Yes, it's about burnout, but burnout could be at a daily level, but it could also be at a long-term level. But your advice is just so helpful in terms of life skills. You know, we've all had this moment. And for me, I had it in my junior year, like my second year of internal medicine residency, we would go from the Hopkins downtown campus to Hopkins Bayview, which is our sister hospital, and basically be the senior resident in the medical ICU or the cardiac ICU. And everybody says, that's when you learn ICU medicine, you're all hyped up and I can't pay attention on Brown. Brown's is really the sign out where you're now getting the entire patient board. There's like a billion different things, a billion different data points that's coming your way. And you're like totally overwhelmed. And you're like, I need to know all of this. Otherwise, like patients will die if I am not paying attention and integrating all this information. And again, you go into this like overwhelming cycle. So after rounds, I walked out, took a moment call the friends and ask them what their experience was like. And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is a great experience. Yes, you're going to start basically leading in the ICU. But remember, you've got amazing nurses. You've got amazing interns. You've got amazing fellows. And there are even attendings there. <laughs> what do you know? Like, this is not all on your shoulders. You're actually not isolated here, but you're in a cocoon. So learn to delegate. And that's one of the things that you mentioned earlier. And then learn to organize, right? If you could start organizing the data points that you need as they come and what data points need to be acted on now and what data points to be acted on later, then you could start realizing that you're in a cocoon and all that data does not have to be acted on immediately. And you could just take things one step at a time. And then I just remember going back in there and reorganizing myself and feeling a change. And that's actually how I do it nowadays. If I ever get into this position, I just take a break, go step out, go talk to somebody who's just been through it recently and ask them how they experienced it. And you'll be just fine. You have a cocoon and that is great. 
But shifting gears a little bit, if it isn't clear already, we love our program directors, our internal medicine program directors, our cardiology program directors, et cetera. And so it's important that we look at the cardiology fellowship program director burnout and well-being study, where there appears to be some notable differences between gender and age of program directors. So 45% of men versus 29% of women felt a strong agreement regarding adequate support from leadership. When looking at career stage, 56 of late career versus 35 of mid slash early career faculty felt a strong agreement regarding adequate support from leadership. Why do you think these differences exist? Dr. Dan, why don't you share with us your thoughts first? So I think with the career stage, there's likely some component there of just experience, networking, having more experience with self-advocacy and negotiating. That being said, we don't have a lot of data on why these differences exist. And I think in particular with the gender differences, there's probably some other things at play that we just don't have stats on. We know that women are less likely to achieve promotion at the same time frame, less likely to receive equal pay. There's some data from the business world that would say that they are less likely to receive support when they're transitioning into leadership positions, which we can probably extrapolate into academic medicine. And so I think all of those things probably have some type of impact, but those are just my thoughts. I don't really have any data to support that. I do think bias is still, unfortunately, pretty prevalent and impacts how women are perceived and how they're supported. I agree with Julie on this one. I'm not sure that I can add much to that, mostly because these are all hunches. I would say Julie and the group that did that survey and wrote the paper were really terrific and thinking about that and trying to quantify what it is and just the differences. It's scratching the surface, though, just like a lot of the other studies that are going on in residencies and fellowship, trying to understand burnout. Just like I was talking about before, every single group and every single level has some different burden or stressor. And I think for program directors, it's slightly different. It's common sense, I think one of the things they found was that larger programs with those PDs tend to have more burnout. And that's because we give so much, right? Or most of us do. Like Julie and I feel like we've got a lot more children and you worry about them like a parent. That weighs on you. That emotional exhaustion weighs on you. From a gender and a career standpoint, I think their bias is exactly what Julie was saying. I would also say, and this goes back to like your intern year and your first year of fellowship, Victoria, like what you were saying and Dan, what you're feeling right now. The Imposter syndrome is like real. Imposter syndrome doesn't go away just because you're like, you know, faculty by any means. Like when you're doing something new for the first time, you're like, man, I should probably not be here. Who trusted me to be in charge of a lot of careers? Every single year now during recruitment, I get the applications and I'm like, I would have never gotten into fellowship if I was applying now. Like Victoria, literally never. They'd be like, no, no, back of the line for you. Because it just gets so much better and better every single year. Thank God I'm old and I got in when it was easier. That's all. That's hilarious. I honestly have battled so much with imposter syndrome. In residency, I was very much like, I don't have imposter syndrome. And then first year fellowship hit me and I was like, okay, maybe I do. I still have it at times. I fortunately just won this grant with ATC and I'm super grateful for it, but I had no clue what I was doing. Like no clue. And even in winning, I'm still ecstatic about it, but also in shock. I'm like, I need to do it because I don't really know what I'm doing. Luckily, my mentor does. <laughs> I mean, I'm very passionate about the project. So it just is like you talked about part of the burnout. It's the people. What I'm doing in my project is because I really care about health equity and medical education and patients. So I do love my project. I'm learning it. So it's not that I'm a complete failure, but I'm just saying that I'm very humble by all of this. I just want to state for the record, because we're actually being recorded, so it's on record, Victoria, they do not give up this grant to people who aren't supposed to have them. 
See, this is why she makes a wonderful program director. Cheerleader, second mother, friend, supporter, all of those. But I do have to ask you all, though, one of the things that I was surprised about in your paper are the mid-career faculty. Them having increased symptoms of burnout. We talked about women in program size a little bit, but what about those people that are not early, but they're mid? Why do you think that is? I'm interested to hear what Julie has to say on this one, but the mid-career for women oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes is when home life and all of the other aspects of life really come to a peak. And I think still in America, we're getting better at it, but I think most female physicians still run most of their household. They're responsible for taking their kids to the doctors and organizing school stuff. So as kids age or you have more children and you're usually rising to other positions. So maybe if you're a program director, you have other titles too. So Julie and I have both other institutional titles and leadership roles at ACC and other things. It just gets a little bit heavier, but I don't know, Julie, what were your thoughts when you wrote that paper and found that data? Yeah, I think it's life. I think that's exactly what it is. Um, when you're mid-career, it's right when everything is sort of taking off. Everything you're you're seeing sort of fruits of career labor taking off. You're seeing your kids go in a million different directions and needing a lot of different support. And also parents start to age. Your friends maybe are going through personal time that you need to be supportive of. There are health issues that come up when you get to mid-career level. And so I just think life starts to add stressors on and it becomes something that can contribute to burnout at that level. Yeah, it's interesting when you are growing up, you think your parents are like invincible and nothing affects them and they can conquer the world. And that kind of goes away after you learn more and get better. And that's kind of how I felt when I was reading the paper. The program directors have such a special place in our own development that you think that they are invincible too. And then you read, oh, like program directors get burnout too. Like really, like I, I never thought about Dr. Menon getting burnout. That just doesn't make sense to me. You know, it just doesn't make sense. But, you know, across our various years of training, we are touched by so many mentors, but PDs really do have a very special place. And to Dr. Burlacher's point earlier, it's just amazing to think about the scores and scores of fellows that, that you've had that impact for. So it's just glass half full and on the bright side and on the positive note, it's just an amazing position to be to have that kind of impact. So setting aside for a moment the issues with protected time and, and support and mentorship and burnout and all of these very real things, say you have a trainee in front of you who's driven by education and interested in becoming a program director, maybe somebody like Rolene Kaur sitting right here with us. What would you tell them about the decision to become or aspire to become a program director? Would you tell them to dive right in or run away as fast as you can or somewhere in the middle? I think I will probably speak for Katie and myself when I say we would say dive in. Definitely. We've been talking a lot about what drives burnout, about what's hard about different stages of life, what is rewarding, what are the meaningful parts. And I think for every trainee, and this is what I always encourage, figure out what is driving you. And then you got to really embrace that. You know, what we do is hard, it's challenging, it's serious. There is a lot of that heaviness to what we're doing. And so you got to make sure that when you're getting up out of bed in the morning, that what's waiting for you there makes you excited and makes you happy to be there. So if that's medical education, you got to dive right in. As usual, I agree with Julie. It is 110%. I mean, like, go. Everybody get in. Not only do we need more help in this field, but also it's so darn fun. It is really just an awesome thing. If you find yourself interested in learning about learning, if you're curious about why specific curriculum is developed that way or studying it, or if you're like, oh, cool, why do I learn more when I'm listening to the Cardio Nerds podcast than when I listen to some of these other podcasts, right? Oh, maybe it's because 
because of storytelling. What's the method of storytelling? What's the what's the science behind storytelling and how we learn that? If those are things that are exciting to you, join us. We would love it and it will continue to evolve and we need more creative thinkers and a lot more fun like this. I'm feeling excited just for listening to both of you talk about your passion for medical education and just how rewarding the whole experience has been. And I think this discussion has just been so great in terms of also talking about some of these things like burnout and imposter syndrome, which come down to sometimes they're not talked about. So it can be an isolating feeling and you feel like you're the only one going through this, especially like during transitions, as you mentioned, from fourth year med school to intern year where you feel like you're the only one who doesn't know everything. It's so great to hear about all of your experiences and learn from that. And Dr. Verlacher and Dr. Dam, this overall has just been so impactful and informative. But how do you end up there? How do you become a program director? What's the recipe to becoming one? And I'm particularly interested as I hope to grow in academic medical education. I wish there was a clear pathway. It's not like interventional where you say at the end of your general fellowship, then you apply for interventional. You decide if you want to do structural and then you start looking for jobs the year before you grab. It's not like that. Like Julie said, first and foremost, figure out what you love. And if medical education is in that, then find a mentor. And if you don't have a mentor at your program, reach out to one of us. I still to this day remember I was a third year fellow and I cold called Jeff Coven after hearing one of his presentations at the ACC where he was doing the fellow boot camp, which is the old days before we did a program director summit. Now we do that before the actual meeting. But he was presenting on the concept that I thought I was going to do my master's thesis on. And I was like, oh my gosh, darn it. Maybe he'll give me his data. And I was like, well, it's cold call. You know, my other mentor at back at my, she was like, well, can you just email him? And I was like, I don't know him. And then I was like, well, what's going to happen? Maybe he'll just not respond. And he immediately responded and jumped on the phone with me for half an hour. A week later, he and I are now still good friends. Julie and I pay back all the time. And so know what you love, find a mentor, and then be persistent. It's not an obvious path. There's no easy way to be a program director. Some of it is luck of timing. Some of it is trial and error. Some of it is negotiating your way in. Sometimes you have to wait for a couple of years until somebody steps down or retires. There's a lot that goes into this. But I think for right now, for all of the trainees that are listening, there's a lot of stuff that you can do right ahead. And a big part of it is getting into the med ed community and, and finding a mentor that really can coach and sponsor and advocate for you as you come up in the ranks. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Mentorship is crucial. And I think many of us have benefited from having local and not local mentors and learning from them and sort of getting new opportunities through them. And I think taking advantage of opportunities that are in med ed is huge because you get experience, you get the networking involved, and also just making sure people know your interests. I think sometimes we're like worried to say things like, oh, I would love to be a program director someday, but tell people what you're interested in and just make sure they know. I told my program director, so note to self, this is just another story. When I was a second year resident, literally, Dr. Mike Mathier, he's a heart failure, pulmonary hypertension doc. And I sat in his office and he was like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? What kind of cardiologist do you want to be? And I was like, I want your job. And he was like, okay, you know, that's not normal. And I was like, I know, I would like your job. And truth be told, six, seven years later, I had his job. That's not the way that it works for everybody. But I think saying it out loud, naming a goal, writing it down is actually really helpful. Well, before we close, I want to do a special shout out for Dr. Mukta Srivastava, 
She is a program director at University of Maryland. She was here. I think she had to hop off, but I do want to say that when I was a medical student, I shadowed her in the cath lab and she has been incredibly inspirational and we've been in touch. She's been involved in Cardi Nerds in several of our episodes and she's been a supporter of our journal club and at the end of the journal club as well. So super shout out to you. Hope you catch this on the on the podcast. Wow. What an amazing conversation we had here. This was just so much fun. Victoria, Gerline, Ahmed, Dr. Burlacher, Dr. Dam. My goodness, thank you all for such an inspirational, light, but also serious conversation. Tennessee is freaking awesome. So thank you all for being here tonight. And you guys are just amazing people. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Cardio Nerds. As always, thank you guys. And honestly, bow down to the heroes of medical education. Hello, I'm John Jeffries, chair of the Cardiovascular Institute at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and Methodist LeBonner Healthcare System in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm the current governor of the Tennessee chapter of the American College of Cardiology. Herein, I would like to provide a brief update on our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in our Tennessee state chapter. These initiatives were all included in our State of the State report presented to the American College of Cardiology at the end of 2021. We began a mentoring program specifically for women and minorities interested in becoming future leaders of the Tennessee American College of Cardiology or the American College of Cardiology at a national level. This was something that we felt strongly about as a chapter and considered the initiative a visible opportunity to offer more direct access to mentors and leaders, not only within the state of Tennessee, but across the country in cardiovascular medicine. We promoted this program throughout our network across the state and received multiple applications. We ultimately selected four mentees who have been participated in council meetings and the annual state meeting that we hold. Our feedback has been resoundingly positive regarding the experience. We have been occurring uh, information throughout this process and to iterate on our program and will continue to improve it over time. We also plan to continue this program indefinitely as it is a unique pathway for women and minorities in our state interested in becoming leaders within the Tennessee chapter or at a national level of participation in the American College of Cardiology. The relationships developed through this mentoring program will lead to longitudinal relationships that offer multiple opportunities to increase the visibility of the mentees and open doors that otherwise may not have existed without the special relationships developed throughout this important effort. Secondly, we participated in the Adult Congenital and Pediatric Cardiology Virtual Career Day in 2021. We had a specific focus on increasing awareness in historically black colleges and universities around our state. We were very successful in coordinating efforts across Tennessee to facilitate opportunities for attendants to participate in this very instructive career day. The goal of the Adult Congenital and Pediatric Cardiology Virtual Career Day was to expose medical students enrolled in various historically black colleges and universities and other medical schools with diverse student bodies to adult congenital heart disease and pediatric cardiology careers. Doing so early in their medical career helps grow the pipeline of underrepresented minorities who pursue cardiology and its respective subspecialties. The ACPC Virtual Career Day consisted of a panel of diverse adult congenital and pediatric cardiology specialists who shared their personal experiences and pathways to congenital cardiology. This virtual career day was a partnership between the American College of Cardiology's ACPC section and chapters where the selected HBCUs are located, which included the Georgia chapter for Morehouse, the DC chapter for Howard University, and the Tennessee chapter for Meharry 
as well as the Texas chapter due to their high proportions of Hispanic and Latino residents. Lastly, we have provided leadership and support for the Southeastern Women and Cardiology Conference for the past three years, which has been since its inception. These sessions have focused on how to negotiate a contract, physician rights, financial planning, career advice for subspecializing, dealing with burnout, and juggling personal and professional responsibilities. Impactful new mentor-mentee relationships have been created and friendships have been formed that have lasted longitudinally. Impactful new relationships are oftentimes the key to success in fields such as cardiovascular medicine, and we are exceptionally proud of this initiative and plan to continue to sponsor this effort well into the future. I hope this brings you up to date on our efforts in Tennessee. We feel very fortunate to have the opportunities I've spoken about today. We will continue to identify opportunities to further address diversity, equity, and inclusion in our great state. Please feel free to reach out to me if you would be interested in learning more about opportunities to participate at the Tennessee chapter level or at the national level within the American College of Cardiology. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.